Well, I begin with an introduction. In 1976, theologian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he published a book titled, How Should We Then Live? And in his opening chapter, he wrote the following, What people are in their thought world determine how they act. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and this is true of a dictator's sword. What Schaefer was highlighting by saying this was the fact that one's belief is certain to manifest itself in one's actions. Now, to many of us, this doesn't come to us as a surprise because uh, this isn't a new idea, but rather it's an idea that's been made very clear in the Bible. The reason why so much of the Bible is devoted to doctrine, statements regarding what we must know and what we must believe, is because the consequence of these truths are definitive. Now, we live in a day that claims quite the opposite. They say that it matters not so much what we believe as how we believe something, that is, with sincerity and tolerance for other views. That's a big word, tolerance, what they say. But this claim isn't only dangerous to the mind and to the heart, but this claim is an outright denial to God's truth, even with the best of intentions. Schaefer, in asking this question that served as the title, How Should We Then Live?, He provides the answer by writing this. He says, Our manner of living as Christians must be consistent with our professed faith. Well, the writer of Hebrews, he's devoted the first nine and a half chapters, all the way up to 10 verse 18, to the proclamation of truth regarding the person and work of Jesus. In other words, to the doctrine of Christ. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, with that one word, therefore, the writer turns the corner to make the transition from knowledge to application, cause to effect, from instruction to exhortation, from doctrine to duty. But before we go any further here, let's turn our attention to God's word and let's read tonight's passage together. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We'll be focusing on verses 19 through 21, but for the sake of context, we'll be reading all the way through to verse 25. So again, it's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is God's word. We read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. O gracious Father, as we come and as we gather tonight as your church, we pray that by the Spirit you would draw us in and draw us close. That as we turn our attentions to the preaching and to the receiving of that word, that we would approach the throne of your grace with prepared and readied hearts. Refresh us anew both in mind and in heart. Assist our souls to long after and breathe in your holiness. Build us up and establish us in the great school of Christ. That we might behold your beauty with a clear eye of faith. Bless this time now we ask and it's in the name of our beloved Savior Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Out of all the great questions that one can ask in this life, and especially for the life to come, the most important and crucial question is this. How can I go to God? How can I go to God? This question, this dilemma is One that every man and every woman and every child must stand face to face with at one point or another in their lives. It's not a matter of potential, but rather it's a matter of time. How can I go to God, especially knowing that He is holy and I am not? The book of Hebrews, it provides and has provided for us the most glorious answer to this very dilemma. And the answer comes reverberating through every page and every chapter and every line. That we can indeed go to God, but only in one way. Only in one way. And that is through the Son of God, Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, to quickly overview what the writer is going to do here in this portion of text, as far as the in-depth Old Testament exposition and doctrinal development go, all the heavy lifting, if you want to say, is now complete. In other words, there's no more unpacking of the tabernacle that needs to be done. No more clarification on the Old Covenant and Uh, the, the royal priesthood and the line of Melchizedek, the sacrificial system, the promised land, and so on and so on. All the unpacking is now complete. And I can imagine some of you giving off a little sigh of relief here because it's dense. It's been very dense, I'll be honest. It's been thick of a study. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't any doctrine or theology left within this letter. But again, the point is that the writer's done making his arguments regarding the person and work of Jesus. And so he now makes the shift by taking everything that he's established from chapters 1 all the way to 1018, and he gets all of that, 
And he begins to apply it all. Commentator Philip Hughes, he sums it up quite nicely. He writes this. The conclusion of the central doctrinal section of this epistle is now followed by an earnest exhortation to the readers to apply and practice in their daily living the important truths that we have just experienced, which have been expounded. And he writes, Doctrine is not mere theory, as it must be applied. Faith must be practiced as well as professed. Truth must be lived out. Now looking at this portion of text, verses 19 through 25, if we were to examine this text from a bird's eye view, the writer's strategy is to use verses 19 to 21 to utilize this section of text as the very foundation to set up three hortatory or hortatory exhortations. In other words, if you look down again at your text, there are three let us commands that spring forth out of the ground, the ground being the confidence that we have in Christ. We find in verse 22, we read, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold Fast, in verse 24, let us consider one another. And so for today, our text, again, verses 19 through 21, will serve in some way as the soil which will then give root and bear fruit to these three exhortations. But with all of that being said, and making a full circle back to our question, how to go to God, Verses 19 through 21, it provides for us an answer with great specificity here. The writer communicates that we can indeed go to God because there are two things that we have because of Jesus. There's two definitive possessions. First, we will find out, because we have a boldness in Christ. Now look down with me to our text, verse 19, we read again. Therefore, brethren. Now whenever we find the words or read the words, therefore, the question that always needs to come up first thing in our minds is, what is that therefore, therefore? Well, we've already established that the writer is making this monumental shift from doctrine to duty. But we also find here that he's addressing specifically the brethren, the brothers. Now, as we read this, we can't forget the fact that Hebrews is not just a letter that was simply written to a group of first century Christian Jews, but it was actually a sermon that was preached through the form of a letter. The writer is addressing through this sermon persecuted, discouraged, disheartened Christians, and he refers to them as his brothers here. And he addresses them as brothers, the brethren, not because they're somehow related through mutual parents, and he's not addressing them as brothers because of some kind of common Jewish heritage, depending on who you think and believe wrote the letter, But he calls them brethren simply because they belong to the same community of faith. 
He calls them brothers because he wants them to know that they have been joined together side by side as a family united through the work of the person Jesus. That they've been united through the mutual elder brother that they share in Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, we've studied this. And we can't just read past this as if it's small or insignificant. Because we have to hear, as we read this, we have to hear and listen and recognize the tenderness and love with which the writer is writing here. It's as if we're reading a letter written by a sibling to another sibling. As if a family member is writing to a brother or sister. But the other thing that we need to recognize here is what's implied in this text. As brethren, the New Testament never communicates the idea that once you're saved, that you're saved somehow to yourself and only to yourself. In other words, once you've become a Christian, it's an absolute ridiculous idea to ever think that you can just go off and do and live out your life in your own faith. This is what you might refer to and I call Lone wolf Christianity. If you're in Christ, you immediately become a part of the family of God. And it's in Christ that you are, in every real sense, connected through the blood and spirit of Christ with a familial bond which runs deeper and stronger than any other bond that binds you together even with your own flesh and blood. Meaning the bond that's been so forged through the Son of God, Son of Man, taking upon Himself flesh and blood, runs deeper and stronger than any other bond that's made of flesh and blood, you see. And this is what the church is. This this is what the church looks like. The New Testament never communicates the idea That the church is somehow a physical building in which we meet. And I think that's quite clear. And I'm sure that everyone in here would agree with that statement. We know that when we say that we're going to church, we're not saying that we're going to a specific building or some kind of location. But rather, many of us say that to communicate that we're going to gather corporately together to worship with the people of God. But I also think that where many of us fall short in our thinking here is when although theologically you know that church isn't a building or a location, you often think of church in terms of a schedule. It's something that you have to do. It's something that you have to attend so that you can just check it off on your list of things you need to get done. But this isn't the New Testament concept of what the church is. I believe that one of the great temptations that we face, especially in the busyness of life, is that people often think of church as one responsibility that needs to be juggled with the many other responsibilities in life. You say to yourself, I have work, and then I have lunch with this person, I have dinner with that person, then I have to go to this appointment, and I have to attend that appointment, and then I have to go to church. 
But the Bible never communicates the church to be some kind of responsibility. But the New Testament always claims the church to be an identity. It's who you are because of who you belong to. This to say that the church is fundamentally not an activity. It's not a gathering. It's not a schedule. But the church is an identity because it's being a part of the family of Christ, you see. As long as you look and believe and consider church as a place to go or a thing to do or or a responsibility to fulfill, then you will always feel that disconnect inside of you. And some of you feel it right now. Let's be honest. Some of you felt that walking in tonight. And it often sounds like this, how I hear it. feel like there's no community here. hear it all the time. I feel like I just don't really fit in. It's not easy for me, don't you know? Perhaps it also sounds like this. Well, I'm just here because I'm, I grew up going to church. It's something I'm used to. I'm here with mom and dad. It's something I do. I'm just here because I had nothing better else to do tonight. I had no other plans, but that's why I'm here. I'm just here to do my good deed and then go home and fill in the blank. But when you begin to understand that church is a family, and family is what you are, that in Christ that we're all brothers and sisters, and in Christ that we are one, that's the moment you'll begin to see this pastorally charged language that the writer's using here. He says, therefore, brethren, not strangers, not acquaintances, but brothers, Therefore, brethren, my brothers and sisters, I'm writing to you to remind you of who you are. We are the family of God. We belong to one another. I would hate to think that what happens in this place as we gather together is some sort of meaningless gathering where we just come and shake each other's hand and sing some songs, listen to some sermons, only for us to go back home and start all over again. I I would hate that. But I would like to think that what happens here, even now as we worship together, is the building up of a family where we increasingly learn to love one another because we belong to each other. And that because we ultimately belong to Christ. Look down again, verse 19, we continue to read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter. Now, this is the first possession that we find here, the first possession that we have in Christ. Having boldness, or as some of your translations might say, confidence, having confidence to enter. And this word is a a loaded word because it carries along with it two complementary facets. The first is what we might refer to as the objective emphasis, where the boldness that we read of here is understood very literally to, uh, to, to be the authorization for a secured access, or 
In other, way, in other words, the, the right of one's entry into a certain location. But the word that's used here doesn't just hold an objective sense of authorization, but it also carries along with it a very subjective sense, a subjective sense of boldness, more specifically, a boldness that's saturated with joy. One lexicon, it says this, it describes this word as such. This is a word that communicates a joyous confidence that's the result of faith. And so as we consider this word boldness or confidence, we have to consider it both in its objective and subjective sense because both aspects go hand in hand. And the reason for why it's so important for us to understand this is because as the writer's talking and as, as the writer talks about going to God, having access to God, he's not simply talking about having the right of entry, but furthermore, he's talking about having the right disposition as we enter. Because it's thoroughly possible, and I, I think that you guys would agree with me here, that it's thoroughly possible to have legal authorization to enter into some place but at the same time, not feel comfortable with going in there. This to say, you can have authorization, but still have this feeling of fear. You can have the right access, but still feel this feeling of reluctance. And so what the writer's communicating here is that not only do you have full authorization to enter, but by the perfect offering of Christ, it's for you to have a joyful confidence as you enter. You are to have a joyful boldness that undergirds your entering here. In other words, it's right for you to think and believe to yourself, I belong there. Is that strange for some of you to hear? It's not wrong for you to say, I belong there. I belong with him. And where is it that you belong? Verse 19, we continue to read. You belong to the holy place. You have the joyful authorization to enter into the holy place and into the presence of God. Because of everything that's been accomplished in Christ, the writer is exhorting the brethren because of Jesus you have free access into the very holy place of God. You need to know this. You have the right to go to Him for grace. Brothers and sisters, you have the right to go to Him for strength, to go to Him for help, to go to Him for mercy and forgiveness, to go to Him to worship Him, to commune with Him. You have the right to go to Him at the moment of your death, straight into His presence, and that to dwell with Him forever. If you were a first century Jewish Christian, if you were the original audience reading this very letter, this news, this reminder, wouldn't have just come to you as profound and absolutely revolutionary, but it would, in every real sense, it would have left you baffled. It would have been unbelievable. It's 
too good to be true, perhaps even a bit too audacious. The reason being their whole lives, their whole history even, to even imagine anyone except the high priest who had authorization to go into the holy place and that once a year on Yom Kippur, to even imagine anyone to even confidently go into the presence of God would be nothing short of incomprehensible. That is mind-baffling, mind-blowing. This news to boldly and joyfully enter into the holy place would have come to them as the greatest of all privileges, you see. With that being said, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this night, do you recognize the freedom that you have to go to God in Christ? To come and gather together as the blood-bought family of God. Do you consider this, this what's happening right now, do you consider this to be a privilege? I have met and I have talked to far too many people who actually believe and think to themselves that their attending of God's worship service is not for their good, but for God's good. They walk around pompously, confidently, not in God, but in, the, in themselves, walking around as if their attendance at church is not their privilege, but it's God's privilege. God must be honored that I'm here. And oh, how I pray that that kind of thinking would never cross any of our minds here tonight. That that kind of wicked attitude would never be found within our hearts. But perhaps even with the backdrop of all that great news that we find here in Christ, of this bold and this joyous access to God, perhaps there are some of you in here who are still struggling with this very thought thinking to yourselves, well, what about when I sin? How can I just freely walk? How can I just freely go to Christ if I'm finding myself so stuck in my own sins? How can I look to Jesus if I look more like the son of Adam, more like the son of God, like Christ? Well, the glorious truth that we find here in this text is that even when we fall into the weakness of our flesh and we sin, we need not to cower in unbelief or doubt. But it's for us to simply know that when we do fall into sin, and when we are and we find ourselves in the brokenness of heart in our sin, that we can still find in that troubling state a joyful confidence that our Father does love us that He will accept us, that He will welcome us into His presence. Now you might be saying, well, how can that be? How can you say that? Well, it's because the source of our confidence to boldly enter is not based upon you and your condition. That's not what the writer says here. He doesn't say boldly enter because you've been good. Boldly enter, confidently enter, because you're worthy. Because you're righteous, because you deserve it. That's a popular word. You deserve it. 
But the word of God declares because it's solely of what Christ has done. In other words, the source of your confidence to enter into that holy place is not determined by your condition. It's not contingent upon your obedience. It's not your perfection, but Christ's perfection. Well, how do we know this? Look at the very, very next line. We read, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Beloved, it's solely by the blood of Christ that not only cleanses us, that not only saves us, but it's by His blood that makes us acceptable to God. Don't you forget that. We've studied time and time again, even last week, that it's by the blood, by the one offering of Christ, that He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. No more barrier. Sins perfectly cleansed, eternally washed away, forgiven of all of our transgressions because the effective blood of Jesus that perfectly, hear this now, perfectly, perfectly saves. Puritan Henry Smith, he writes this, All who are saved are saved by Christ's blood. His death is sufficient to save all. Just as the sun is sufficient to lighten all. But if any man wink or close his eyes, the sun will not give him light. There are some of you in here tonight unable to behold the great glory of God and the promises of God. And that because you keep closing your eyes. Beloved, you must open your eyes and look not to yourself, but to Christ and His blood. And it is only then, it is only then that you can enter the most holy place into the presence of God. And that with a joy-saturated boldness, one for you in the person and work of Jesus. It's the blood that not only cleanses us of our sins, but as the writer has taught us over and over again, that it's the blood that has cleansed our conscience. It's the cleansed conscience that is the absolute confidence that God, verse 17, remembers our sins no more. This is where the aspect of joy comes comes flooding through. Joy flooding in when we not only know this, but believe it. It's for you to believe. Church, you can have absolute confidence as the member, as a member of the new covenant family of God in Christ, that He has forgiven you of your transgressions. He has forgiven you and removed you, your sins as far as the east is from the west. No matter how horrible the sin, no matter how destructive the sin, no matter how dark the stain, we sing here and we love to sing here, He washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Well, how can you go to God? Going back to that question, how to go to God? Well, the Word of God clearly teaches us here that we can go to God and that with boldness Because the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, those of you who might feel unworthy to be saved, unfit to be saved because of certain sins 
that haunt your lives, past sins that continue to grab at your heels day by day, even right now perhaps. You must recognize the glorious promise here for you that because of the blood of the Son, you not only belong to God, but you belong with Him in His presence. And as you cling upon the cross as your only hope and you ask God, you see Him and you ask Him if He would accept you, if He would receive you and if He would cleanse you and forgive you, Christian, be well assured that because of the blood of the Lamb, the answer of heaven will be a resounding yes. Of course. Of course. Moving on, look down with me to verse 20. We read, Therefore, brethren, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. And I'm going to move faster here, but verse 20 This verse expands the idea of the boldness that we've seen previously. He does this by expounding how it is that we can enter. More specifically, that it is by a new and living way. Which then prompts the question, what does it mean? How is this access that we have now through the blood of Christ, how is it new and how is it living? Now when the writer refers to the boldness of entrance as new, The word new has a specific nuance to it. And the plain idea here is previous to the coming of Christ, there was nothing like this sort of entrance. And so when he says that it's new, what he's saying is that the annulment of the old through the death of Jesus brings about with it something that is indeed truly new that had never been known, that had never been experienced before in redemptive history. But much more than what's stated here as the obvious, he's communicating that it's not just unprecedented, unprecedented, but that it's qualitatively different. It's qualitatively new. Tongue twister. In other words, what Jesus has done for us in this new way by his blood is that he's brought a certain kind of freshness to coming to God that will never wear out. This is boldness, this boldness to enter into the holiest place. It's a new way that will never grow old or never change or never, it's never to be modified. Meaning your boldness to enter into the presence of God through the blood of Christ, is not circumstantial. It's not temporary, but has been eternally established and fixed for you forever. But not only is this way new, but the writer, he refers to it as living. Once again, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of these first century Christian Jews, just as the new way opposed the old way, or if you want to say opposed the old covenant, the living way opposed the way of death. Because at the end of the day, the old covenant, if you can recall, was a system that brought along with it, not life, but it brought forth death. This is exactly the reason why Paul describes in 2 Corinthians that the letter of the law kills. Because it was the old covenant that brought about condemnation. It had no inherent power 
to bring about life. But in contrast, this new way described here, this new way is a living way. It's a life-giving way. And it's life-giving not because it points to a new code. It's not life-giving because it points to and it looks to a new ritual or looks to a new system. But it's life-giving because it points to a person. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that the blood of Jesus doesn't only bring forth forgiveness, not only renewal, not only cleansing, but it brings forth new life. The reason for why this is so crucial for us to recognize, as simple as it might sound, that we need to recognize this truth is because there are some Christians out there who in every true sense have been powerfully saved and redeemed by Christ, but only for them to live like they're still dead. There's something marvelously and gloriously new once Jesus had entered into this world, ushering in a new way of living that's a living way. A new way that brings forth life through the transforming power of Jesus. And it's this very new and living way, verse 20, which was consecrated or inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The flesh of Jesus stands here as the representation of his incarnation. The flesh of Jesus is to be understood here in light of the fulfillment of its very purpose in the offering of the perfect and final sacrifice on the cross. Now this goes back to the necessity of, of the Son's humanity, and it goes back to the many weeks ago that we've studied this very passage, that the Son himself partook of the same nature, that through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. And what the writer's doing here is uh, he's, making, he's making an analogy here. He's making an analogy to the veil once found within the temple that separated man from God. That very veil when the crucified Lord cried out, It is finished, and when he breathed his last. That veil that was torn from top to bottom. And the significance here then of the analogy between the veil and the flesh of Jesus is only this, quoting John Owen, that by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ, wherein his flesh was torn and rent, we now have full entrance into the most holy place. I think we all get that which then naturally leads us to the second possession that we find in verse 21, where we read, And having a high priest over the house of God. The second great possession that we read of here is really to no surprise directly linked to the first possession. The reason being that these two possessions are at the end of the day the same thing, if you think about it. More specifically, they're directly linked, this first and second possession, because they're both found in the same person. There are two things that we have, brothers and sisters. First, we have confidence to enter. And second, we have a great high priest. 
And the main message that the writer's trying to get across here is this. That the one, Jesus, who opened and secured the way for us into God's presence is there himself. Jesus, he's there sitting, as we've studied last week, sitting and waiting there at the right hand of God. Our great high priest is sitting there with the Father, interceding for us, representing us and pleading effectually for our acceptance, securing and sending to us the Holy Spirit so that we might be rightly fitted and empowered to obediently Worship the Lord before His throne. And this is what we must know, church. That it is solely because of our high priest who is there seated that we can know with full confidence that we belong there. We belong there. And we can know that because of the blood of the Lamb, we can now enter into the presence of God with boldness and with joy. Well, again, these verses, going back to the start here, it serves as the introduction, the very foundation, which then makes way for the three let us exhortations, which we'll get into the next three weeks. But before we close our time together, I want to end by going back to where, again, we started, and that by answering the most important question. Perhaps some of you are asking right now how to go to God. How can I go to God? And the answer is quite simple and clear here. And it's an answer that's not found in a system. This answer is not found in a building. It's not found in a theory. And this answer is not found in a fact. It's not a knowledge issue. It's not a knowledge thing. But the answer is simply found in a person. It's found in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's to Him that you must go. It's to Him that you must trust and follow. And I leave you with a quote from the great J.C. Ryle, and we'll close right after this. He writes, It is Jesus Christ who bears the keys. It's to Him we must go for admission into heaven. He is the, he is the door. Through Him we must enter. He is the great shepherd. We must hear his voice and follow him if we would not perish in the wilderness. He is the great physician. We must apply him if we would be healed of the plague of sin. He is the bread of life. We must feed on him if we would have our souls satisfied. He is the light. We must walk after him if we would not wander into darkness. And he ends with this. He is the fountain. We must thoroughly wash in his blood if we would be cleansed and, make, and made ready for the great day of account. And we will sing that in a matter of a few minutes. How great is that fountain? Let's pray. Our gracious, our merciful Savior, many of us come with heavy and burdened hearts recognizing that the more we do, the worse we find ourselves to be. The more we know, the less we actually know. 
The more holiness we seem to have, the more sinful we find ourselves to be. But despite the recognition of our own wretched state, may we never delay in boldly coming to you by the blood of Christ our Savior. He who is the new and living way, yet always the same in the effective power to save sinners. As we go forth now from this place, teach us how to live in this world, but not to love it. To use our talents, to redeem our time, to help us to walk in wisdom so that we might bring honor to your name. So that we might better love and minister to those around us whom we call our brothers and sisters. We lift up our prayers to you. To God who is the Father, God who is the Son, and God who is the Spirit. Three in one, one in three forever. Amen.